Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. What is up, Cove Church? My name is Dwayne. I get to be one of the pastors here. And on behalf of all of us here, it's so great to be with you online. And we're so thankful for uh, joining us online as well. It is, uh, I'm hearing more and more stories coming out about people who haven't been out of the house or been able to feel comfortable coming to church for years and years. And we just want to say thank you for your moral support, your prayers, and even your giving. We really love you, and it it really helps um, move the kingdom forward. It really helps with what Cove Church is able to do in our community. So just want to send that to you and bless you with that. Um, We've been walking through this series, this series called The Gospel of Done. And the basic premise is that because of what Jesus has done, what has happened, the gospel message, it impacts our lives. What do we do as a result of the gospel being done? And so we're walking through First Thessalonians right now, and we're going to be in chapter four today. And as we learned that Paul has spent three weeks, just a short three weeks in Thessalonian. And in Thessalonia, the, um, there was a, a persecution that had broken out. And so after three weeks of being there, him and Silas kind of get ran out of the city. And he's, he's reflecting on his time there. And he's like, man, I wish that I could have shared more with them. And how are they even doing knowing that they're suffering and, and there's persecution happening to them? And so he kind of sits back and he writes this, les- this letter to the church and in hopes that his unfinished teachings, he can kind of fill in and finish those teachings. This three short weeks, it really leads us to this question that you've probably heard many, many times as you've been listening to these series that what can God do in just three short weeks? And I think it's interesting that for Paul, in this three short weeks, reflecting back, he's seen that God actually loved the church of Thessalonica more than he could. And I think that's important for us to to know as we set the premise for our message today that no matter what's happening in your life and people that you wanna love and care for, and maybe you can't go out and do that right now, God loves them. And we're gonna see today that as, as Timothy reports back to Paul, He says, look, Paul, the the church is good. They're growing. They're growing in their love for each other and and their commitment to to holiness. And and they're just growing. God is doing this amazing thing. And so the tone of this letter is really a very encouraging letter. And it must have really resonated very well with Paul. And so as we land here in chapter 4 today... Paul encourages the church to allow God's call to increase their commitment to holiness, loving each other, and ultimately to fix their hope on the return of Jesus. I've titled this message, um, A Life of Increase. I want to preface this message with this point, that 
the topics of conversation that we're going to be um, kind of talking through, I realize it's, it's difficult to talk about in a setting like this. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of talking happening between us right now, as you can see. <laughs> But Paul speaks on the matters of sexual purity, brotherly love, and hope in Jesus. And these can kind of tug on some sensitive subjects in our life, some sensitive experiences even in our life. And so this message, I really wanted to, to kind of focus, shine that um, focus on the fact that this should lead us into more conversation and more relationship, not less. And so myself, other staff members, other pastors here, we are available to you via FaceTime, Zoom, whatever channel of communication you want to use. We're available to continue these conversations. And it's interesting, too, that Paul... He had shared suffering with the church in Thessalonia. And, and we must see that as the backdrop for these conversations. And so if I'm going to get together with you and we're going to have a conversation about any of these matters we talk about today, we're going to have that conversation based on our shared struggles. And it's not going to be something where I can talk to you and just tell you what the Bible says. <laughs> Ultimately, there's so much more I wanted to share about these issues than I could put in 30 minutes. And so I hope you hear my heart in that. Um, as we move forward, we're going to see what Paul does, uh, what he has to say about this life of increase. And he starts with this point, that God calls us to a life of increasing holiness. First Thessalonians chapter four, and we'll be uh, verses one through eight. And it says this, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I must confess that this scripture and others like it, I have not been able to fully digest them very well. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's my checkered past or maybe this understanding of holiness. I've kind of always considered it just this, this standard of living that God calls me to that was ultimately unattainable. 
And I was talking to, uh, maybe you feel the same way. And I was talking to uh, my wife, Jasmine, recently. <clears throat> and we were reminded, we were reminiscing about the days and probably the first couple of years before we had really came to Jesus. We, as I mentioned, we had a checkered past. Uh, we built the foundation of our relationship on what Paul would call uh, passionate, youthful lust. <laughs> um, we built it on uh, kind of some mutual, you know, you do for me and, and I'll do for you if, if you're lucky. <laughs> kind of the selfish motivations. That was the foundation, um, not to mention throwing addiction on top of that. And so we, we find ourselves, we were talking about where we were at. And at this time, we were um, in a really bad place. Jasmine had found out that she was pregnant with my son. And so she takes off. She goes to Portland to get clean. I stay and I say, no, I, th I think I'm going <laughs> to have some more fun here. And, um, and she describes this time in Portland as probably the, the best time of her life. It was, it was a time of sorrow because of our breakup. It was a time of hopelessness and, and uncertainty and, and not knowing what's going to happen. She's there alone and pregnant. And I'm sure I added to the stress by her hearing different things about what I was doing. But she says this. She says, it was the best time of my life because Jesus was there. It was me and Jesus. And she describes it as this, this wonderful bubble that she lived in for a while where he, she just knew that he was with her and he cared about her. And, and she, she also longed for reconciliation with me. You know, Jesus, if, if Dwayne could just experience this relationship with you, then I know he would, he would turn to you. <laughs> Well, what ended up happening was she ended up getting back with me and the hoodlum that I am, I end up pulling her back into kind of some backsliding. And it's there two years later, a year and a half later, my son was born. He was about one and a half years old and me and her are just, we're done. Like I'm I've spent most of my time working or in the garage. She spent most of her time taking care of the kids. And, um, and we were just done with each other. It was probably the worst time in our relationship, if I'm being honest. But in that moment, I remember this night very clearly. In that night, she was in her room. I'm out in the garage. And God just shows up. He, he begins having a conversation with me. He begins having a conversation with her. And we ultimately conclude that with Jesus, we, we can stay together. And you see, when Paul, he speaks here to the punishments, that God will punish all such things. The punishment for us is that we indulged in our own selfish ambitions for so long that it's impacted our relationship even to this day. We're, we're going through, we're about 20 years in, close to 20 years into our relationship now. And we still struggle understanding intimacy. We still struggle 
uh, with insecurity and shame and guilt. We have these highlight reels of past escapades and, and pictures on screens that create a standard of how we would interact and expectations that we would place on each other. Oh, these consequences are very real. And we notice that the language that Paul uses here, he, he says things like to do this more and more, that, that you would grow more and more. You're doing the right thing, but to do it more and more, implying that they are already living and pleasing to God, but you could still grow. <laughs> Three times he uses this Greek word called it's hagiosmos. Now, hagiosmos is interesting word. It's used in all sorts of contexts, but it refers to sanctification, a growing process of, of holiness, morality, sanctity. <clears throat> and simply put, holiness is a relational process with God. It's not a personal standard to be achieved for God. And this was like... This was life-giving for me. That it's not that standard for God. It's a relational process with God. But then we see that Paul then makes this claim. He says he doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks on the authority of the Lord Jesus, which is interesting. Because when I looked up where Jesus talks about these issues and sexual purity and stuff in Matthew 19, he, he talks about marriage he talks about what God has brought together, let no man come between. He also talks about in Matthew 5, divorce and adultery. And it would seem that Paul kind of distills these teachings down into kind of a framework for us that, look, your sexual life, your sexual morality is to be framed in holiness and honor. It's to be framed in holiness and honor. And I think this is difficult for us because the, the chasm between what the church is called to do and where our culture is, is vast. <laughs> we live in a culture where sexual intimacy and, and honor, they've been reduced to a physical exchange of something that's mutually and momentarily beneficial. And Paul's call to the church and to us is to allow a relationship with God to motivate us towards increasing honor for others. You see, honor is, is a measure of value. It's placing value on you. It's placing value on your friends and, and the relational dynamics between us. Because the sobering reality is that adultery is not just a concept that affects married people. It's not. In Jesus' mind, adultery, it, it affects everybody involved. It, it wasn't just for married folks. Um, so therefore, having a physical relationship outside of God's covenant, it shows dishonor to the individuals involved. It, it would dishonor me. It would dishonor whoever it's involved with. It would not only dishonor, show dishonor in, in, in those two, but it would show dishonor to the future spouse or the future kids 
who then are going to have to wrestle through the issues that, are, that came up because of those actions. And ultimately, it's not very honoring to God either who brings people together. God's call to honor is that we would receive value from him and then freely give that value away. That's the first thing. Here's the second, that God's call, uh, God calls us to a life of increasing in love. And he says in verses 9 through 12, Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do. You love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Again, we see Paul speak to this lifestyle of increase. He tells them that you are doing a great job of loving God's family and to do this more and more. And it's cool because there is no cap on God's love or the love that we can show to each other. And Paul would commonly, he would go to churches, different churches all over the place. And as he would go to these churches, he would teach lots of things. But two common teachings he would he would bring up is, is the first being that believers should share everything in common. They should uh, be generous and give to the needs of others within the church and in that way showing love. Paul would also talk about the second coming of Jesus, that, that Jesus was coming back soon. And what seems to have happened in, in the church of, of Thessalonica is that some of these folks, they heard these two teachings and they said, you know what? I like this. <laughs> I am going to actually quit my job. I'm going to start to just take resources from the church. And you know what? In addition to that, I'm going to go to the town center and I'm going to get involved in political matters. <laughs> and I love hearing Paul's tone. He's like, hey, mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get involved in what everyone else is getting involved in. So what, as, as a result of, of some of these folks who were making this decision, um, Paul's concern is that this, this is already, the church is already enduring suffering. They're already being persecuted. And these individuals, they were going out and they were causing unnecessary an unwanted attention to the church. Like, oh, there's that Christian guy again just condemning people, right? Or there's that Christian guy again. He's just talking politics and, and about this Jesus is coming back to rule. And all this is pointing to this one truth that to increase in love for others, it means to move from thinking what you can do for me to what can I do for others? That in God's kingdom, there is a responsibility to both give to the needs of others 
and to be independent so you don't need anything from others. But it doesn't stop there. This brotherly love principle, it reaches far beyond discernment of what to give and what to receive. It means that in a culture that increasingly measures an individual's worth by wealth, title, um, money, the church is to stand in contrast as ones who make decisions about spending, occupation, and time management that are really based around a loving impact for others. How can my job help me love you more? How can my job help me love my community more? This principle, it challenges us to reconsider what it means to truly love our neighbor. Um, at the beginning of, of COVID, about two years ago, uh, the Pastor Aaron's advisory team, we all met to um, talk through, you know, what was happening. And a common theme happened. You know, we've faced so much in the last two years. We've, we've faced COVID um, quarantines, uh, mandates, masks, no masks, vax, no vax. We've, we've experienced all these things, racial injustice and, and inequality. And um, not only that, but gender issues as well. All these things just started to come to the forefront of our world. And I love it because as a team, what we did is we started framing every single question um, every single issue, I should say, with this one question. What is the most loving thing we can do for our community? And that began the foundation for every decision that we would make from there on out. See, to have increasing love, it means that our love for each other, it will affect our decisions. And ultimately, Paul is saying that <clears throat> the impact of our decisions will affect those in our community. And our decisions can produce respect from those who do not know Jesus because they see how much you love. Because God calls us to a life of increasing love. And that's the second thing. Here's the third. That God calls us to a life of increasing hope. In verse 13 through 15, he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of our Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So now, as I mentioned earlier, Paul had left some teachings a little bit underdeveloped in his speedy getaway. <laughs> it seems there's a question here that the church was asking. This question had something to do with death. Probably along the lines, we don't know for sure, but probably along the lines of what happens to a believer when they die or a believer who's alive when Jesus comes back. And Paul tells the church that because of their belief in Jesus, they have a hope unlike the rest of mankind. That Jesus is coming back and he's going to establish his kingdom once and for all. But Paul doesn't just point them kind of into the future. He actually refers them back to the past. In other words, because Jesus resurrected, he is coming back. Because Jesus resurrected, so will you and so will I. I have, uh, I have a dog. We got a dog at the beginning of COVID, a little COVID puppy. Um, and throughout my relationship with this dog, it's been a real love-hate thing. Uh, he does all sorts of just things. I think he intentionally tries to make me angry. I really do. Uh, he will go, he'll get in the garbage, and he will leave like a trail of garbage all over the place, throughout the house. He, if we leave the garage door open, he'll go out there, he'll eat all the cat's food. Um, if, if we're not catching him in that, he'll eat all the cat poop too, and then he'll come up and try to lick your face and stuff. It's disgusting. If we buy new plants in the backyard, he digs them up. It's just... Recently, I've been starting to lose hope with my dog. <laughs> and then the other day, my dad comes through. He's going to pick up my daughter and take her out to lunch. And um, my family tells me about this incident. So I looked, I looked it up on our, our video cameras. And, um, and so what I seen was Jade running out to my dad's truck. And as she gets closer, you hear this bark in the background and and then this stray dog starts running straight at her and he's getting like 15 feet out 10 feet out he's getting closer and closer and then all of a sudden my dog busts out the screen door and catches this dog before he gets to Jade and chases him off down the street and when I seen that I was like a proud dad I was like, yes, <laughs> all hope in my dog is restored. I seen the courage that he had. I seen his desire to protect my family and all hope was restored. And I forever have this past memory referring to this future hope. And this is what the resurrection, this is what it means for us. Because the resurrection was not it was not a fairy tale. It was not some far off land and the, some distant thing that happened. There's real life documented evidence of this resurrection from those who followed Jesus, from those who did not follow Jesus. And Paul continues this thought. He continues this thought by using some vivid 
imagery. Imagery often associated with end times prophecy stuff. I'm not getting into all that. Um, there's lots of hour long <laughs> material you can look up online about that. But the imagery that he uses is very significant. Because for the church at this time, they would have understand exactly what Paul was saying. If, if a city or a country was taken into Roman occupation, then what would happen is Caesar would roll through that city. He would roll through that city. As he's coming up to the city, everybody in the city would go out and they would, they would get the trumpets and they would lay down the palm leaves and they would celebrate this new king ushering in this new kingdom. It was a party. It was a welcoming party. It wasn't an act of resistance. And this is the picture that Paul wants to paint when Jesus comes back. He says that when Jesus is coming back, it's going to be this, this ushering in of this new kingdom. And everyone who, who worships and loves the king and welcomes his rule and reign is going to meet him outside the city and celebrate the fact that he is here. What a great encouragement for a suffering church. What a great encouragement that Jesus is going to right all those wrongs. He's going to put everything back in order. And what a great encouragement for us. See, the future for believers, it's, it's not a place. It's not a place. Heaven is not a destination. It's a person. The future for us, it's, it's not a place, it's a relationship. That once you die, you go to be with the Lord forever. So whether on earth with, with his spirit or, or in the next stage of life or in death, we get to be with Jesus. Such a beautiful promise. I want to close by reading this one scripture. And I want to encourage you to think about those places in your life that are producing hopelessness. It's Romans 8, 38 through 39. It says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. I thank you, God, that as Paul says, you give us your Holy Spirit. You are the perfect embodiment of honor, intimacy, love, and hope. Thank you that we have this hope that you will complete the work that you have started in our lives. And God, I ask that as you have worked in, in my life with Jasmine, 
and you have brought growth in these areas, would you bring to mind and bring to hearts of those hearing these words that same hope, that same deliverance, that same empowerment, that we together would be a church that accepts this invitation from you to increase in healthiness and wholeness. Not as a have to, but as a get to. Because you are so good to us. Will you help us in this way so we can earn the respect of others and glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.